Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. When Shama Sawant was elected to the Seattle City Council in 2013, her local victory made international news. An immigrant from India and an academic who taught economics, hers was an interesting story, especially because she campaigned in favor of bold proposals, such as a $15 an hour minimum wage. But what everyone was interested in was the fact that she was a socialist. At that point, before Bernie Sanders had entered the 2016 presidential race, and long before the election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to Congress, Sawant stood out on the American political scene. Now, as she seeks re-election six years later, there are a lot more socialists seeking and holding elected office in the United States. But Sawant still stands out. In part, this is because the policies she has championed in Seattle really are bold. The $15 wage, taxes on millionaires, rent control. But it's also in part because of the enemies she has made. Like Franklin Roosevelt, who famously welcomed the hatred of the bankers and speculators who opposed his New Deal initiatives, Sawant relishes fights with economic and political elites. This year, she faces the biggest fight of all. Amazon's Jeff Bezos and others are trying to defeat progressives on the Seattle City Council, and they are focused in particular on beating Sawant. That's a daunting political reality because Bezos, who in 2018 was named the richest man in the world, has a limitless bankroll. But Shama Sawant is undaunted. She's our guest this week on Next Left. Seattle City Councilwoman Shama Sawant, thank you so much for joining us on Next Left. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's a pleasure. We talk a lot on this show about uh, candidates and elected officials who take on daunting tasks and are up against very powerful rivals. But I don't think we've ever had a circumstance quite like this. You are in the midst of a fight right now with the wealthiest man in the world and with some of the most powerful interests, not just in your city, but in the country. And I, I think it's a good place of beginning for this conversation. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into this circumstance, or perhaps tell us about how Jeff Bezos got himself in this circumstance. Yes, I think that that's a really accurate characterization of where we are. As uh, many of your listeners might already know, I'm up for my second re-election this year and election night is November 5th. I won my first election in 2013 running as a socialist on a campaign platform of the $15 minimum wage, taxing the wealthy and big business and also a demand for rent control for Seattle where rents are skyrocketing. And then I won my sec my first re-election in 2015. And the context in which we are running this second re-election or my third election campaign for city council is really the story of all of America and especially metropolitan America where we have seen since the end of the Great Recession massive untold wealth being consolidated by a very few at the top, which includes venture capitalists, property management corporations, the tech billionaires and so on, while the rest of us are languishing with stagnating, or in many cases, especially in the case of the black community, black and brown communities, 
wealth that has shrunk dramatically and a whole generation being condemned to very low-wage jobs and really uh, bleak futures. You know, so Seattle's story is the story of an extremely wealthy city where construction has boomed, where billionaires, new billionaires have been created in the last years. And yet at the same time, the city faces an unprecedented affordable housing and homelessness crisis. Rents are skyrocketing. There's an epidemic of economic evictions that has taken place over the last eight to 10 years. And the just to give you a concrete example, the central district, which is part of the district three that I'm running in, used to be everything from central district to the south used to be where the black and brown community lived decades ago because we had an actual explicit racist redlining law that said nothing north of the central district could be inhabited by people of color. And now we have a different kind of redlining, which is an economic redlining, where the black working class and brown working class and even small businesses who called Central District home created the community of vibrant and dynamic community that has been home for so many of our working families now has been denuded of its people of color population because there has been such a spate of economic evictions. And in this context, you know, we are calling for a tax on big business because the the city and the state, you know, state of Washington has the nation's most regressive tax system, meaning corporations like Amazon, Boeing, Microsoft, not only pay little to nothing, if you add up all the tax rebates and subsidies they get, they actually pay a negative rate of tax. And as you know, because of Trump's tax cuts, Amazon especially has benefited. Amazon got a whopping $129 million tax rebate thanks to Trump's tax cuts. So, uh, you know, we've been fighting for attacks on big business. And I, I don't know how many of your listeners have heard last year, our movement was strong enough to win a unanimous vote on a very modest tax on the 3% of the largest businesses, Amazon being one of them. And then we saw Amazon, Jeff Bezos, corporate real estate, other big businesses and billionaires uh, viciously fight against it. And most of the council, unfortunately, Coward and ended up repealing it. Only myself and another council member refused to re- vote to repeal the tax. And now we're seeing what we had predicted actually last year. Last summer I had predicted this, that if, if the council gives in on that uh, repeal, then Amazon and the Chamber of Commerce are going to be emboldened and come and uh, you know, do what they are doing this year, which is an attempted hostile corporate takeover of Seattle's democratic process. And it's it really is a, a major incursion here. Amazon is obviously headquartered in Seattle, although it's looking at other places around the country. Uh, but this is a company with unimaginable wealth and obviously an owner with unimaginable wealth. And you're talking about city council races uh, where... For a wealthy person, a very small amount of money from them, something that that they would barely notice, could easily influence results. How much money usually is spent on a city council race in Seattle and how much is flowing in now from Amazon and other interests? That's a very important point. And we're talking about the richest man in the world and the billionaire class that he's part of. 
going to war against the city council of a you know of, of a city i mean we of course uh, uh, we are familiar with this kind of corporate influence on congressional races obviously on the presidential campaigns but you can see that local elections are not immune either and i think you know just before giving the st- statistics which is very really important to include in this conversation i just wanted to step back and sort of give a feel for why do we believe that amazon is engaging in this kind of uh, an attempted subversion of seattle's democratic process i think it's precisely because you know people have seen many of the efforts towards progressive policy making to address the massive inequality nationwide racial gender economic inequality and many grassroots movements have learned that actually it is possible to make change starting from the local level and that is exactly how you know after we won our seat you know through me through my office as an elected as an unapologetic elected representative of Seattle's working people we were able to win the $15 minimum wage less than 6 months after i was elected because a broad coalition of the labor movement and working people themselves we we came together and socialists we you know we united around that and then since that we have won a whole host of landmark renters rights victories we have successfully defeated attempts at economic evictions we are now building a powerful movement for rent control and so the billionaire class while it initially might have arrogantly misjudged the power of local movements is now understanding that there is a real danger that if this socialist in Seattle city council gets reelected once more that will send a message of confidence not only throughout Seattle but throughout the region throughout the state and indeed nationwide you know it will it is the is it is that contagion of working class confidence that the billionaire class fears the most and that is why they are so determined to uh, you know attempt this kind of corporate takeover and what are they doing in the context of what the history has been historically you know to answer your question john probably a few hundred thousand dollars you know for especially if it's a very contested race but right now we are talking about amazon and other corporations who together have formed this chamber of commerce pac political action committee which has now raised i think over 3 million dollars and amazon itself amazon alone has poured in uh nearly a million and a half into this corporate pack and that is aside from the direct campaign donations that have made that they have made to my opponent and to other chamber backed candidates you know in the other races and so what we have now is the largest corporate pack contributions in Seattle City Council history and in fact my corporate backed opponent has the distinction of being the single largest recipient of corporate pack money in Seattle City Council history this is a shift that we are seeing where it is it's actually a wake up call for social movements and for progressives that we cannot uh we we have to be sober and understand that this logic of you will you know let's not build left momentum let's not try to build left momentum nationally because it's easier to do it locally well guess what if you start organizing and raising the collective confidence of working class people to win victories locally 
the billionaires are going to come after you there as well. So there's no shortcut to building determined and courageous social movements that will fight to get our own candidates elected. And that's why what's at stake for us this year is not only what happens in Seattle, but what happens nationwide. You have been understood nationally as a a groundbreaking figure, admittedly in one city for a local office. But if we go back to when you won your city council seat initially, there were very few high-profile socialists winning elections. Uh, You had Bernie Sanders at the national level, no doubt, but this was before he ran for president. It was before Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib and so many other figures now who've come to prominence across the country. I'm very interested in a couple of questions as regards your own development as a, as a thinker and a, a candidate. Where did you come to socialism? Was it, do you have socialist roots in your family or is it, is it something that, that came uh, through experience? I don't actually have socialist or even political roots in my family, actually. I grew up in a very, what I would call as a South Asian, as a typical working to a middle class family where education was highly prioritized and, uh, you know, girl children were given a lot of encouragement. So I, I grew up in a very loving and nurturing family, but it was not a political family and I don't know, I don't have any explanation for why I was political, but I, I have always been political from the time I can remember. And I think it was the experience of growing up in a country like India, you know, which faces not only the brunt of the capitalist system, which we see everywhere globally, because that's the system we have in place globally, but also the effects on top of that of being a neo-colonial country, which is facing other sorts of pressures as well through, you know, Western imperialism and the IMF agenda and so on in the 90s. And so I grew up watching this contrast between uh, extreme wealth on the one hand, a sliver of working to middle class, which was somehow getting by, was not homeless, had food on the table, but clearly, you know, our, our parents were working all hours to and living very frugal lives just to give the basics to their children. And then on the other side, you had this vast ocean of poverty and misery and absolute, uh, you know, just uh, destitution that hundreds of millions are experiencing. And in that context, uh, caste violence, sexual violence, and so much that was going wrong. And it was, for me, it was it was not only a moral question. Obviously, I think that has to be the starting point. And I think that is a starting point of the vast majority of people. I, I strongly believe that people have, uh, ordinary people have this innate sense of what is just and what is unjust. But on top of that, it was also a question for me of logic, you know, that I could see that the system is wealthy enough to provide for the needs of everybody and then some, meaning, you know, the system has enough resources and wealth to uh, allow for every human being to thrive. And yet you were seeing the exact opposite outcome. So this was not some inevitability of human race. And And the reason I came to socialism was all the explanations that I was given from people around me, the, uh, you know, older adults around me were so unsatisfactory, like, oh, it's just karma, it's your fate, which is the complete, the most nonsensical explanation. 
but also that, well, it's just inevitable, you know, human beings are cruel, greedy. None of this made sense. And it's clear to me, it, it was, you know, over time that clearly this, ha this had to do with the way the capitalist system works. And so I was looking for an alternative. It's ironic that it was after I came all the way to the, to the West Coast of the United States that I encountered other people who were thinking like me. And I recognized that this really made sense, the understanding of why the capitalist system works a certain way and what we need to do, which, which is, in short, for the majority of the people to get organized, fight for concrete victories, but while doing so, also raise the vision of deeper social change. We'll be back after these messages. Join me on the nation cruise to the Western Caribbean this December 8th through the 15th, sailing from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with ports of call in the Bahamas, Jamaica, Grand Cayman, and Mexico. I'll be joined by Ijin Poo, Joan Walsh, Ben Jealous, Zephyr Teachout, and many other progressive thinkers, leaders, and heroes. Together, we'll explore our turbulent political landscape and debate what can be done about challenges facing the United States and the world. We'll do it all amid the natural beauty of the Western Caribbean. This trip will sell out fast. Secure your spot at www.nationcruise.com. I hope to see you on board. People often, again, it's the pundit class, often tries to make a distinction between those who are focused very clearly on economics and those who are focused on social and racial justice. They, they try to drive divisions at times. But from the start of your politics, you've pulled these things together. Yes, I definitely agree with that. Although I would also want to clarify that there may be different types of understanding among progressives about uh, what that kind of uh, interaction between racism and economic injustice means and how that plays out. My own analysis is that uh, race, uh, that, you know, ultimately the purpose of capitalism, the objective of capitalism, the single, single-minded purpose of the system being to maximize wealth and profit for a small minority at the top, sliver at the top, whereas, you know, and that, and that coming at the expense of ordinary people. So, in other words, the economic exploitation of the billions of people around the world is not an unfortunate an incidental juxtaposition to the untold wealth at the top, it's a zero-sum game. You know, the, the wealth at the top is, is being siphoned off by exploiting other, you know, by exploiting billions of people of, of the value of their labor. So I think that uh, having said that, it, it's also apparent that in order to sustain such a deeply exploited system where the vast majority of people should be on the same side, you know, because we are all being exploited, it serves explicitly serves the interests of an economically exploitative system like capitalism to then create divisions among the exploited. So racism being one of those divisions. And so many of the scholars, you know, who have written on what 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 slavery actually meant and what the Jim Crow era laws were all about, you know, they've they've pointed out much more eloquently than than I will at this moment, which that uh, you know the white working class has been deeply exploited over the decades as well. But the purpose of the Jim Crow laws was to keep black and white working people from becoming united in order to sort of, you know, deflect attention from the overall exploitation so that white working people would 
uh, feel well. At least I'm not as worse, bad, badly off as a black person, or or my my misery is because of this black person, and so you know that creates this deep hatred and and racism, and that is not to underplay the in any way the insidiousness of racism and gender-based violence and the gender pay gap and the mass incarceration system, but precisely to do the opposite, as you were saying, that, you know, as, as you were acknowledging that I've done from the very beginning, which is to understand that the only way that we can actually win a society that is free of any of such oppressions like racism, like sexual violence, is for those of us who are exploited to understand that our interests are tied together and uh, we have to, you know, we have to push back together, push back against the system that generates such evils. And uh, just to give you some concrete examples also, it's quite striking how, uh, you know, $15 an hour was obviously an it was an economic demand, but who were the workers that were on the front lines of this demand? I mean, I I didn't create this demand. You know, what we did was recognize that that was something that was capturing the imagination of low wage workers, and that was that that we we had the poten- real potential, historic opening, to fight for it and win it. But who were the workers on the front lines who actually started talking about this and then fought for it? It was workers of color, and when you look at the fact that People of color are overrepresented in low-wage jobs because of the insidious correlation between race and class in the United States. You can see that when we won the $15 minimum wage, the section of our working-class society that was most going to benefit was exactly those same people who are disproportionately represented in the low-wage jobs, which is black and brown people, LGBTQ people. Well, you... One of the things that I've been struck by you, and I've been out in Seattle a few times and seen you campaigning and... and serving as a as a council member is that for you solidarity is a is a beginning point and it's not just about these very serious very tough issues about a campaign also or about you know particular policy fight one of the things i've been struck by with your campaigns is the cultural component of it that you bring people together lots of people and rely on a lot of grassroots organizing. And there is music and food and community, which is, I think, a little different from how a lot of people see politics, uh, at least from the 30,000 feet of Washington. You have, you've developed this solidarity politics out there in Seattle. Thank you so much for mentioning that, John. And I really, I really like how you're describing it. It's the solidarity politics. And it makes me realize, you know, listening to you, that really, is there any other kind of politics we could have if we are genuinely fighting for the interests of ordinary people? It has to be based on solidarity. And I think it's a real, it's a really good way of pushing back against this political gaslighting that we see from corporate candidates, as we are seeing this year from my opponent, who has based his entire campaign on this mythology that, you know, city council member Shama Sawant is divisive, is toxic. I mean, set aside the fact that these are dog whistles to the right wing, they're racist and sexist tropes. But the real subtext of that is you're not 
compliant to corporate politics. You know, you don't agree with corporate lobbies. You you are not somebody that billionaires can rely on. That's the message of when 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 corporate candidates say you're being divisive. What they really mean is that you are unbought by big business interests. And I think what you said is exactly right. We absolutely believe in unity and solidarity. And you, as you said, it's that's the starting point because without that, what could we have achieved? And it's also a reminder for us, you know, solidarity politics is also a reminder for us that there's no universe in which we can win progressive victories by saying, okay, let's get some great person elected and then allow them to do whatever they want. You know, they will do whatever they can. And then whatever they are able to achieve is the best we can achieve. So if that elected official decides that the best thing they can do is make backroom deals with other corporate politicians, be less Uh, shady than those politicians, but still not really fight for what's possible, uh, then that's the best we can do. Uh, So I think the the way we have built movements using my office really pushes back against that idea of one person doing it and then accepting the limitations of what can be done by one um, well-meaning person. who. And we saw with the Amazon tax repeal, there were well-meaning Democrats on the city council whom I work with every single day and I appreciate them. But the repeal was an example of how being well-meaning is not enough. You have to understand where your strength comes from. And I think the underpinnings of the kind of solidarity we have built is precisely that, is the analysis. I mean, my, my work is rooted in a political analysis that understands that my strength comes from rooting myself in social movements that because of the numbers, because of the uh, political understanding of what we're up against, because of our organizing abilities, we are able to bring the kind of pressure on the rest of the city council or on the mayor's office or on the business establishment in a way that we simply could not with all the best intentions in the world if it was simply left to me as an individual. And so it's really about uh, understanding where that strength and power comes from. And then the other aspect of this, the corollary to that analysis is then that means you're feeling, willing to go as far as the strength of the movements will take you. In other words, when people say, oh, well, she's just, she just doesn't make compromises. Well, that's that's just a complete, you know, it's a, such a superficial, quite useless analysis because it doesn't recognize the fact that obviously, you know, just the fact that workers are living under capitalism in such exploitative conditions, that's that's a compromise. The, the fact that we workers fight for unions you know, it's not, it's not, it's not going to uh, fundamentally change society, but it, it's a step towards that, and that's why it's important to do that. And so, the corollary to the, the to the analysis that you know your power lies in social movements is also to recognize that you go as far as the movements can go. In other words, you base yourself on the strength of movements, not on what's possible through individual conversations with other elected officials with whom you feel incumbent to you know to agree to them so in other words rather than bending to their their limitations you instead go do what you are able to do based on the strength of a movement so to give you again a concrete example and it, it really reminded me of this example when you mentioned the music and the food and the community was in 2014 and this was after we had won our historic uh, victory on $15 an hour the Federal government, which has had, you know, even before Trump, it's gotten much worse under Trump. But even before Trump, there's been decades of 
neoliberal austerity politics where so many public services and public resources have either been gutted in funding or ended altogether. And uh, the funding for affordable housing, you know, publicly owned quality affordable housing has been one of the major victims of this kind of neoliberal politics. And so in 2014, in, in September of 2014, we uh, we saw that the federal government had a decree that all the federally funded public housing were going to experience a 400% rent increase. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I, when every time I say that people think I'm mistaken or making a mistake or it's a typo, you know, no, it's not. It, they actually wanted to increase rents by 400%. And that program had an Orwellian name. They called it Stepping Forward. And most of the tenants of the this housing are East African immigrants, Asian immigrants, women, you know, single mom-led households. And uh, we, we successfully defeated that program. And as far as I know, Seattle was the only city to defeat that federal mandate. So it was not easy because, you know, it was coming from the federal government, from HUD. And we were able to defeat that in Seattle. But the reason we were able to do that was because my office was capable of leading, helping lead the organizing of the tenants themselves alongside the Tenants Union of Washington State and other locally based tenants rights organizations. We brought everyone together and the food and the culture was a significant component of how we brought people together. In fact, there were so many moments when we didn't have a common language because they would speak Somali or Amharic and you know, we would speak English, but we spoke the same language of class struggle, the language of class unity and you know, standing together and fighting against this because it meant something for all tenants. If we were able to defeat it, then it would be a victory for all tenants. If we didn't defeat it, then it would be yet another blow to the rights of renters. Similarly, when Seattle became one of the first major cities to end Columbus Day and usher in Indigenous Peoples Day, and we just celebrated five years of that uh, a couple of weeks ago, the way we did that was by, you know, again, through my office, uh, being in touch with Indigenous leaders, urban Native leaders and activists and organizations, and then bringing in food and music and their culture and and making the point that the elevating of the culture of an oppressed community is extremely important and should be extremely important for all of us because it's a reminder for us achieving those goals have such a long way to go and that we have to build that kind of unity on the ground. In fact, this year in the people's budget, we are fighting for permanent funding for Indigenous Peoples Day celebrations that include a salmon dinner in the evening at the one of the indigenous uh, you know celebration locations bringing families children elders together uh, and you know really building that community councilwoman shama sawant that sounds so much more powerful than than an amazon shareholders meeting or or something jeff bezos will be doing i i i really appreciate you taking the time to talk about your politics and and to talk about the, the fight that you're in right now. Thanks so much for joining us on Next Left. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me, John. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia Steinert-Eboy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhuvel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. 
If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts.